Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. This week, I am joined by a trained chartered psychologist. Her clinical work looks at the role nutrition and lifestyle play in mental health. Her private clinic, Monumental Health, provides a comprehensive approach to mental health treatment, combining psychological therapy and nutrition and lifestyle support. She is the host of the Stronger Minds podcast, and I'm so happy to be joined today by the author of How to Build a Healthy Brain, Kimberly Wilson. Welcome to the show. She's here. Thank you so much for coming in today and congratulations on your brand new book. I literally saw you on Monday at the launch. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, no, right in the middle of uh, publication week. It's very exciting, very tiring, but Mm. yeah, all very, very Busy week and you've squeezed us in, so I'm super, super grateful. Absolute pleasure. So first up, I guess for anyone listening to this podcast who may not know of you or your work, firstly get involved it's great but secondly could you start off by telling us I guess why you decided to pursue the career that you have and become a psychologist I know that you have had experience yourself growing up within your own family with mental health disorders so is that what led you on this path yeah I think the so what I say basically on the front page of my book is that I grew up really with a family I I call them kind of bad brains like there was a lot of neurological disorder in my family so I grew up with this really clear and kind of present awareness of what happens when things aren't going well with the brain and and I think that just gives you this kind of heightened awareness I don't know if it's given me like I imagine it's given me a a greater appreciation for my own mental health and my own mental wellness and that I don't take that for granted and I try you know to look after my brain for all of those reasons but I guess in a way that you don't become familiar with until maybe you're older so maybe when you're in your teens and you're doing your exams and you start having those first proper experiences of stress or depression or um, you know all your friends start to develop anxiety disorders like I had those sorts of awarenesses way 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 earlier and so what I think it did was to just make me very, very curious. I was always just really interested in, you know, what's going on in the brain where some, when someone sees something that isn't there or hears something that isn't there or what makes one person respond to a argument in one way or, an, or respond to it in a different way. So I was just really curious about the differences between brains, what happens when brains aren't doing well and, you know, the kind of corollary of that is, how can we make it better? Mm. So I guess that was your entry point. But then from there, who encouraged you to pursue, you know, your career? And did you, were you always academic? Because I think, you know, back to school and, you know, if you'd have gone in and said, I'm going to be a psychologist and I'm going to be an author, I'm going to write about the brain and study nutrition and lifestyle and all of these things. I'm sure it's obviously been a journey. But yeah, how, who encouraged you on that path? 
No, that was pretty much the way it was. At 16, uh, when I was choosing my GCSEs, I was like, okay, so what do I need to do be- to become a psychologist? And so um, I did my GCSEs, I did my A-levels, I chose what was one of the best psychology courses in the country at that time. And I was one of those very rare, I'm not necessarily saying it's a good thing, but I was one of those rare people who knew what they wanted to do right from the beginning. And it was just a very, very straight line for me. Um, and again, like I said, I'm not necessarily saying that that's a great thing because I think there's a real benefit for lots of people of trying lots of different things mm. and seeing what works for you. And I think a lot of people get themselves into a bit of a panic thinking they need to have it sorted out by 16, 18, 21. And I don't think that's true for everyone at all. But for me, it was um, a quite, quite a straight line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's not for everyone, but I think some people will be very envious of you because they spend a long time, you know, trying to figure out like, well, what do I want to do? What do I really like? Mm. What am I good at? And it can be such a it's just an uncomfortable feeling of like, mm. is this really right? Whereas I know a few people actually who've said like from three years old or from 13 years old, <laughs> I knew and this is what I wanted and they've pursued it. So yeah, I guess it's just how it worked out, which is which has turned out great and it's great for us. For me. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about the brain. And in recent years, the conversation around mental health has been highlighted, but it seems like only now to me that we're focusing on the brain mm. and its functions as an organ, as well as the brain as the mind. So, you know, we think about the organs like the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and look at their functions. And although you could feel nervous for example and have an upset stomach you also know that you can have a stomach issue which is then going to be told oh you might be intolerant to wheat or you might have this issue so we look at it as two separate things even though there's an emotional impact and a physical one so I know that you definitely talk about the brain in that way in in connection to the mind so can you share with us a little bit about the brain and the function and how that is linked to the mind and how the two things are not separate Okay. <laughs> just, a, just a small topic. Just a tiny introduction to neuroscience lecture series. Um, okay, yes. And when I, when I talk about this, I, I tend to start with an apology on behalf of psychiatry and psychology because I really feel as if the fields have done the public a bit of a disservice. And not intentionally, of course, but essentially we've been in what's called a Cartesian dualism, this kind of separation between body and mind. And when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, we kind of took that idea and went, fantastic, like that's all we need. And ever since then, we've really considered the mind to be this very separate, very distinct spiritual kind of ethereal thing that, you know, sometimes the the belief was that it kind of got up and left the body and then would come back. And there was all these sorts of ideas. And so it was just never considered that anything that happened in the body had any relevance to the mind. And so what that's meant is that when we started to think about mental illness, you know, right in the beginning, it was possession mm. and, you know, spirits and evils and demons. And then it was humours and, and these sorts of things. But again, nobody really got around to thinking seriously in a, in a very, very broad way across the fields that the mind is a function of the brain and the brain is an organ and that all of our organs require certain basic substances and conditions in order to function properly. And so I use the comparison of the heart because it's, you know, an organ that we all understand is really important, right? We all think we've got to look after our hearts. And broadly, most people know how to do that. And they know or they they have a, an idea of what it would feel like if something went wrong with the heart, you know, 
my maybe I've got palpitations or I've got high blood pressure or I'm feeling dizzy and think, hmm, maybe there's something up with my heart because there's something wrong with its functions. And what I try to suggest is that we should be thinking about the brain using the same principles so that when the brain is struggling, when the brain, the organ is struggling, you will see that in a disruption in its functions. And that's when we have to start thinking specifically about what the functions of the brain are. And the functions of the brain are mood, attention, focus, decision making, long term planning, reason, all of those kind of higher things that make us human all have to be linked and pertain to the brain. So I'm saying we need to start thinking about looking after the brain in the same way that we think about looking after all the other very important organs of the body. Mm, absolutely. So as you described with the heart, people could probably say, if I said to them, how do you think you could improve the health of your heart? It's all the things that we know because the NHS tells us or, you know, we learn at school. It's like get some exercise, heart pumps the blood around the body, you know, oxygen in. And we learn it, you know, in GCSE PE if you do that. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, yeah, do know a lot about the heart. And as I said, you can have these emotional descriptions of like heartache or heartbreak, mm-hmm. but you don't think they're the same thing, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. You mm-hmm. don't break up with your boyfriend and then think I need heart surgery. But you know that you have heartache. And so I think with the brain, as you just described, some of these, whether it's anxiety, depression, I think they've been maybe seen as as something that's separate Mm. instead of something that is a symptom Mm. of, as you've described, um, you know, poor brain function. So... With that in mind, Kimberly, what can we do about it? So I heard something the other day which was really empowering that basically said, I mean, it's kind of scary, but something about like 90% of the things that are, you know, illness related, diet related, all these things are lifestyle related, 90% Mm -hmm. in terms of the fact that it's empowering to know that if you change your lifestyle, if you change your habits, if you change your behavior, maybe if you change your diet, if you change your activity levels, you can have this huge impact. It's not just to say that, well, if you, if you, have anxiety, you have it. Or if you Mm. have Alzheimer's, you're going to get it or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what are some things we could start off with if we wanted to improve and optimise our brain health? Where should we start? Um, The first thing that I would want to say is that we really need to get away from the idea that any of these disorders are kind of unitary, isolated concerns. So what I mean is One person's depression will be completely different from someone else's depression and will have completely different drivers. And I think that's one of the problems that we get into is that you say, oh, I've got depression and someone says, oh, well, here's what worked for me Mm. when I had depression. And it's like, thank you. That's very, very helpful. But actually, we know, for example, that early life and childhood experiences have an impact on your later risk of depression, as well as interuterine nutrition, um, whether there's a history of depression, whether there's a genetic risk, whether um, you then have a chronic illness yourself, whether there are nutritional issues, whether you're under a lot of stress, whether you have exposure to infections. There are so many things. And of course, many of these will overlap. And, And so it's really important, first of all, for people to understand that Certainly from my perspective, the most important thing for you, if you're dealing with something like depression, anxiety, other kinds of stress, burnout, is to have a thorough assessment if you can with a professional or, you know, try as hard as you can to try and work through it yourself and think about what are the causes. It's quite difficult often for people to do it themselves because often people have lived with something for so long they have forgotten what it feels like to feel okay. It's so normal for them. So normal. And also they haven't noticed the accumulation of things, right? That they've ended up, they think that 
all of a sudden they've woken up depressed when actually maybe it's a 17 year history of this and then this and then this and then this and then this, which is where an outsider can have a much more objective perspective and say, actually, I think you underestimate the impact of when that happened to you or when mm. that happened to you. So, yeah, so they're, they're actually quite, they can be very different for everybody and they have different causes. And so it's really important to understand what the causes are for you specifically. And therefore, that will help you to find the right treatment or the, the right place to start in terms of turning it around for you. And then the other things, the more generic stuff, is what really what the evidence tells us is really supportive as what we call adjuncts. So alongside the established treatments, so if we're thinking about depression, we'd be thinking maybe uh, psychotherapy or um, uh, medication. And we know, for example, that improving diet seems to be actually quite an effective way of helping you to get better outcomes from those more traditional treatments. And when we say improving diet, it's all of the stuff that you've already heard mm -hmm. and is well established. Um, but it's worth reiterating for the brain because, again, people don't really think about the fact that, you know, in the same way that their body is, your brain is made of food. And we kind of forget that sometimes. We kind of think, well, I'm just a body and I just draw energy from my food. But no, like this little bit of your arm might have been an apple from last week and this little bit might have been an egg. Like all of you mm. is the food that you have eaten. I never thought of it like that. Right? Are, well, we've heard you are what you eat, so yeah, I guess. But literally, so every kind of, all your proteins are broken down into amino acids and turned into neurotransmitters or to other proteins to build your muscles. All of the sugars actually either feed your brain and then all of the other kind of micronutrients go into processes or enzymes that just keep you alive and keep your brain taking over. So yeah, it's kind of worth reiterating things like that, that yeah. your brain is made of food, your entire body is made of food. Mm. So a healthy diet or a kind of brain healthy diet is one specifically um, that is high in essential fatty acids. And that is really, if you see me anywhere and if you hear me talk about anything, I'm going to be talking about essential fats because it's a real, real concern. Where do we get essential fats? For someone listening who goes, essential fats, cool. What are those? Is it crisps? Is it avocados? <laughs> is it olive oil? Is it nuts? Like I hear like essential fats. I'm like, cool, got it. Have I got it? Okay, good. Yeah, let's let's get descriptive. Um, so first of all, whenever you hear a nutrient described as essential, it means that you're brain or your body needs it for function, but your body cannot synthesize it. There are some nutrients that our bodies can make and there are some nutrients that it needs, but it just can't make. And therefore, we have to get them from the diet. And i.e., therefore, if you're not getting them from the diet, you are deficient by definition. And so essential fats are the omega-3 fats, are long chain uh, fatty acids. And they are particularly important for the brain because your brain is mostly composed of them. So when you take out the water, um, a high percentage of the, what's left of your brain is made up of these long chain essential fats, particularly EPA and DHA. Now, in the most bioavailable state, they are found in oily fish. Okay. And so often people will say, oh, you can get omega-3s from flax seeds, walnuts, and so forth. That's another form mm -hmm. of omega-3 called ALA. And your body can convert a bit of ALA into EPA and DHA, but not very efficiently at all, maybe 8%, maybe 11%. Okay. So if you're not getting them from oily fish, if you don't eat fish or you don't like to taste of fish or you're vegan or plant-based, then you do need to be supplementing because you won't 
be able to get them properly from other food sources. And so you can supplement with an algae-based DHA supplement, which you can try and get a high-strength one from the health food store. But essentially, these fats make up a third of the outer membrane, so the outer wall of your brain cells. So literally, a third of your brain cells is from these fats. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not getting them, what happens is that your your brain then has to compensate, has to substitute these fats for other fats that it just finds in the diet or synthesizes um, from the body because the, the body produces cholesterol and other fatty acids as well. Um, but the problem with these fats is that they're nowhere near as flexible as these essential fats are. And so what that what happens is that it impairs the signaling and the kind of um, the permeability of the cell membranes, which means that it the nutrients that need to get into the cell and the thing and the toxins that need to get out of the cell, the toxic metabolites, get stuck. And so we have impaired performance. So that's one of my biggest things because lots of people, even people who do eat fish, aren't eating enough oily oh, fish. Okay. Right. So the okay. NHS recommends that everybody should be eating two portions of fish a week, of which one should be oily. And I think less than seven percent of the population is getting that. Wow. So it's a really broad concern. And actually there was a, a professor Back in the 1970s, Mike, Michael Crawford, who was saying, he was looking at the population intakes of these foods and he was saying, you guys need to be concerned because we are heading for a mental health crisis if we don't get this wow. under control. It's not interesting that we are now witnessing what we're witnessing and often I don't think people will look at diet in the way of influencing mental health conditions because often now I feel like anyway in the digital age mm. the digital tech and social media has become a scapegoat for so many things mm. and I'm not to say that it mm -hmm. hasn't played a role but I do believe that certainly generation above me blames social media for everything that's wrong with us physically and mentally emotionally you know financially politically <laughs> it's all social media and actually it's like like you just said these social media didn't exist then and mm -mm. he was predicting this for i also heard someone talking about predicting mental health illness and specifically things like different conditions within children mm. and he was talking about pesticide use and the mm. use of you know vegetables being sprayed with certain chemicals and this was 30 years ago and he said if I'm right then in 30 years we'll see more children with x y and z and here we are today mm -hmm. and it's happening but you know big pharma people are like oh conspiracy but equally he's like it's happening and this is why it's mm -hmm. really it's really kind of wow and also as a parent I'm listening to you talk mm -hmm. and thinking hmm because you know for our children we all want to make sure that they're getting enough especially their brains mm -hmm. are growing developing and they have as much higher need for DHA than adult brains do for that exact reason sure and also for lots of parents who think well my kids might be quite fussy or they might mm -hmm. not like that food and so it's a constant battle I think you know probably, probably for all parents to go oh my goodness what, what's right what's wrong you know mm -hmm. should I be should they be vegan should we be giving them supplements should we be you know and it's mm -hmm. really I think hopefully you know through you know content like this and the things that you share and the other doctors and nutritionists and qualified professionals do share I hope that it's empowering parents mm. to really take this knowledge on for themselves and not say well someone else needs to tell me i.e. The, the government or the mm. teachers or the GP because actually I personally believe that you know we can empower ourselves with this knowledge and make informed choices and it's not you know about assigning blame but I do mm. think that we have to we have to take responsibility and go you know what your life your brain your kids come on you know like make make uh, yeah informed choices I think mm. I was just say there's also there's also quite an important question about access and and that's I think where the government does come in because what we know for example is that a lot of these foods so let's say we're talking about 
if you wanted to go in and go and buy the best omega-3 supplement you on the market, a month supply is going to cost you about £25, like mm. for the best high quality one. Um, and that's if you know about it. And if you have two children from different socioeconomic status, mm. you know, for example, my sister-in-law's son, seven years old, favourite food is smoked salmon. Like, that's not the case for a, a huge number of children. Of so course. there's there's going to be economic disparities and difficulties that actually, if the government cares, mm. if policymakers care about true equity, true access, ensuring yeah. that all children have equal opportunity in terms of academic achievement and therefore life lifetime achievement and and you know mobility then actually there is something really important that needs to happen from a policy level to mm. say let's make sure that all children irrespective of whether they're born into poverty or into wealth have access to an, a basically nutritious diet yeah. because that's what's that's what real prevention means in terms of mental health. That you know there are other things, but it's one of the features. It should mm. be how are we ensuring that these children's brains develop as well as possible from in the first place, mm. and then also ensuring that they have access to good education, access to good healthcare. So I think there's it's the, it's both parts, yeah. isn't it? It's about really upskilling, empowering parents and individuals and schools and communities with the information. But the risk with that is that certain types of government will say, well, you've got the information, you should just be... Of course, yeah, know. of course, which we know is not, you know, the right way, but mm. it is how it is, for sure. Food for thought, pardon <laughs> the pun. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> okay, so a slight twist now, mm. slight change. I would love to talk to you about something that comes up quite a lot and I don't know enough about it. So I feel like this is, I'm at the, I'm at the edge of my understanding with this. So I'm going to okay. shift it to you, Kimberly. <laughs> so... DNA kits. Mm. I don't know if the listeners have seen them advertised to them at health and wellness festivals, but I've seen a lot of stuff around DNA kits. I've seen some people saying they're fantastic and what a brilliant thing and we're all going to use them and it's going to give uh, health professionals all this information that's going to help us all. Other people have said, you know, is it irresponsible? Is it too much too soon? Are they even accurate? So... Mm. Uh, for anyone listening, a DNA kit, there's different ones on the market. Some um, are you can take a blood sample, some you can give them a swab of saliva from your mouth, some you can send a stool sample, and then these companies will send you back information about your body and about your levels of different things, if you're insufficient in something, if you have an intolerance to something, if you have a gene that's gen genetically de predisposed to getting cancer or getting Alzheimer's or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Kimberly, I don't know how much <laughs> research you've done on this, but what are your initial thoughts? Are they a useful tool for us or are they scaring us? What do you think? I would err on the side that it's too early and that actually the underlying technology isn't there yet. I think personalised nutrition is where the market will go. And I think that will be really important for people because that's what we are learning, particularly with um, machine learning approaches to scientific research, is that there can be enormous differences in the ways that 
people respond to different nutrients. So broadly, we think that, for example, fat doesn't have much of a glycemic uh, response, that people won't release insulin in response to an intake of of fat. We know now that that's not true, that actually some people have quite a high insulin response to fats. And so that would make a difference, for example, as to whether that person, if they were trying to manage their blood sugar, would be Mm. better off on a slightly lower intake of fats than someone else who might need to have a slightly lower intake of carbohydrates, which would would be the normal way of approaching that kind of thing. and, and then when we think about, because people also do d- gut DNA kits as well, mm-hmm. again, I think most gut researchers would say we're about 1% into what we know about the gut microbiome and what it can do for us. And what we don't even know as yet what a healthy composition of the gut microbiome is. Mm. We know that it, healthy at the moment seems to be diverse. diverse but yeah. again, that that can be different for different people. Um, the thing about DNA kits as well is that your DNA isn't static, which is sounds strange, um, but that your DNA can be switched on and off mm. depending on environmental factors. So we know, for example, that stress can set, turn on or off certain genes and certainly diet can turn on and off certain genes. So it's, re- and, and as well as kind of thinking about early life experiences and whether there are epigenetic effects as well. Yeah. So I don't think that the technology is where it needs to be for people to have reliable information and results from commercially available DNA tests at the moment. I think it's a very exciting place to go and I'd be very interested in in following it up. Mm. But I think right now people would be probably better off saving their money. Mm. Well, I was going to say, because they're not cheap. They're not cheap. I've seen a variety between £99 and £499 and I feel like for anyone who perhaps suffers from health anxiety Mm. or hypochondriacs, I think this can be like a bit of a rabbit hole of thinking, right, okay, let me find out all the information, what's going on, and they might come back with something that I can do or change but what if it comes back with something that you don't know how to impact and change? For example, as I was discussing, pe- the ones that say, oh, you're more predisposed to cancer or or Alzheimer's. Or I think for some people, they just then think, I'm a ticking time bomb, mm. when actually, as we'll probably discuss, there's lots of lifestyle factors as well as just looking at what the, what the test says, what the results say. Yeah, and the kind of gene research has been a a bit of a failure in terms of psychiatry as well. Like Psychiatry spent a long time looking for the depression gene or genes and felt that it had identified them. But then it turns out actually people either become depressed who don't have this selection of genes or it doesn't um, explain enough of the variants or some people then do have it and don't get depressed. Like It didn't give a clear enough answer. So again, it's, I think... Sometimes we like comforting, simple but incorrect answers rather than very, very difficult. Yeah, and actually, where we are at the moment is that this stuff is really, really complex, and there's going to be, I think, for all individuals, a bit of trial and error, like working out whether you're someone who needs seven hours sleep or actually you're someone who needs nine hours sleep. That It doesn't make sense to say everyone needs seven hours. We're all different and that that will shift. And I think that works the same way with diet as well, right? So people, lots of arguments on the internet about whether the best way to eat is plant-based or the best way to eat at the other extreme mm. is just just meat. Yeah, the carnivore, <laughs> the keto. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the idea, first of all, that there is any one diet that will be good for the entire human diverse population 
is a bit wild. Yeah, when you consider our ancestry and like where we were, where, where we, we were, came from, and what we, needs, was available to activity us, activity yeah. levels, all of that stuff. But also that your nutritional needs shift throughout your own individual lifespan, mm. right? Otherwise, we'd still be all taking breast milk. Like that's not the way it works, sure. right? So that our nutritional needs shift with where we are in our di- like physical, biological development, where we are in terms of our society, what's available to us, you know, what our needs are, what maybe physical illnesses we're trying to work with. And so that your nutritional needs really shift with your lifespan, you know, that, that we think for health, generally, people should be eating slightly less protein. But once you get into your older years, you should be upping your protein to reduce the risk of sarcopenia, um, which is muscle wasting. So people really need it's to nuanced. kind of get out Yeah, the idea that one size will fit all or that even one size will fit one. Yeah, <laughs> it, will, it will change. It will change. And we need to be flexible. Amazing. I'm loving this. I feel like we've talked so much about the brain and, you know, you do such a wonderful job of giving us all the, the detail and, and the evidence-based stuff, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But now I mm. want to ask you a question, which is a little <laughs> bit more, I guess, around mindset. Okay. And that is about the negative brain bias. Mm-hmm. So for anyone listening going, hmm, negative what? Essentially, this is something that I was thinking about the other day when it comes to feedback, when it comes to criticism, when it comes to self-improvement, we apparently can have be given 17 pieces of positive feedback and then one piece of negative feedback but we will remember the negative one we will focus on that one oh you know this person said after my presentation that I spoke too fast that was it it was rubbish when actually the 17 other things were like it was brilliant it was engaging it was informative you I really loved teacher. it we love you yeah Fantastic. you're the best but you spoke too fast <laughs> I spoke too fast it was terrible so if we well first I want to know why why do our brains focus on the negative again with other things that we talk about things like Twitter people will say oh you know negative news spreads fastest because people want to I guess focus on things that are dramatic or catastrophizing Mm -hmm. or anxiety inducing corona (laughs) I mean wow so why are we focusing on the negative and is there anything we can do about it to get better at focusing on the good all right, that is an excellent question. And when I was training, it was called the negative attentional bias. Um, and yes, but the same principle that the idea is that we have a bias, an innate bias towards the negative information that comes into our kind of visual field, but also kind of psychologically. And actually, annoyingly, as with so many things about the ways that our brains work that can sometimes trip us up, it has a survival purpose. So... In terms of our evolution, it makes sense for us to be alert to potential risks so that we can, A, store that information well to be prepared should the negative event occur again the next time. Um, it helps to encode that memory a bit more strongly so that you're, um, you remember what you did to get you out of that tricky situation Run or what away it was. From the saber-toothed tiger. Right. You know, we recognize that that's a dangerous animal. Here's what we did the last time we, you know, scrambled up this rock or whatever. And and so the memories and negative memories can be more deeply encoded as well. So it's there for a reason. The problem is obviously that we're not in our same evolutionary environments anymore. And that the nature of kind of modern life really brings to our attention many more risks, you know, so to speak. So now we have many more relational risks or social risks or status risks than we would have 
previously when it would have just been mostly life or death risks, some status risks, because we think it was important for us to stay close to our tribes and um, stay connected to people. But mostly it was about just staying alive. Survival, yeah, actual <laughs> yeah. survival, not social media survival. No, exactly, exactly. Um, and so... So the first thing that I would say is, you know, don't beat yourself up about it because it is this innate inbuilt system. Everybody has it. And it's also worth checking in on two physiological things first. Um, one is whether you're stressed, because there can be changes in the brain when you're under stress or pressure that make you attend more to those negative biases. Um, and also if you're underslept. Same principle, that when you haven't had enough sleep, you get a kind of upregulation in feelings of persecution and paranoia. So you're much more likely when you haven't had enough sleep, whether that's one night or several nights in a row, to think or to interpret an ambiguous statement or facial expression in a negative way. So if I was super tired and you were looking at me with a kind of ambiguous facial expression, looking a bit quizzical, I'd be much more likely to think, oh, she doesn't like me. I've said something stupid. Oh, I've made a mistake then I would be to think, oh, I wonder what she's thinking, to be able to be a bit more balanced about it. Mm. So it's always worth checking on the physiological first. And that's one of the things I really want people to get across, because I think quite often, if that happens, people would think, oh, why am I so negative? Why am I so, I don't know, you know, such a difficult person? Actually, maybe it's something physiological going on mm. that you could check in with yourself and sort out. Can I quickly jump in? Mm. Sorry to interrupt you whilst you mentioned about the tiredness. Mm. I started tracking my cycle probably about nine months ago changed my life mm. so can that impact as well mm. so when you're talking about tiredness is the times for, for me I definitely notice you know times in my cycle where you know the the brain seems to function in a different way so especially with things like that like negative brain bias there's times where you feel like on top of the world you can do anything it's like bring it on and there's other times <laughs> where you're like everything that I do and say is rubbish today my hair's rubbish my face is rubbish my work is rubbish and it, you do feel that negative like everything that you normally I'm an eternal optimist you know like I see the sunshine in everything but you do feel it you're like what is going on and then it lifts and it moves and it changes fortunately mm. but yeah does that is that impact us mm. or have I made that up no no mm. absolutely and that we're starting to understand more and more because so much of uh, research has been focused on men and so much of really that surprises hmm. me really you know like, <laughs> really who did, did this research happen? who did this research so you know the history the kind of entire canon and literature of medical research has been done broadly on white male young university students because that's where the research uh, units are the research labs are usually on university campuses campi campuses and so when they're trying something out they just give students credits for participating in psychological research or other types of research. And they tend to want as homogenous a group as possible. So it's the young white men who are available. Wow, and, that's fascinating and ridiculous. And and it's just down to availability. It's like, oh, you just happen to be here. This is convenience. It's like a convenience sample. Um, and so... What that has meant is that we've missed huge swathes of the way that things are different for women. Um, and one of the things that I talk about, slight tangent, but one of the things I talk about in my book is um, around fasting. So there's a real interest now in fasting and fasting research and time-restricted eating and feeding windows and all of that stuff. And lots of people talking about the, the potential benefits. And you know, the literature suggests there are some potential benefits. And, and I think it's actually quite important for people to understand that. But again, most of that literature has been 
done on men or even male animals, so male mice and rats, mm. so that what we might be missing is actually the way that women's bodies are much more sensitive to nutrient and energy availability than men's bodies are. And that's because of the the importance as far as your body is concerned of fertility. So a woman's body, even if she does or does not want children, is always thinking, is now the time? Is now the time to be having a baby? Should we be having a baby? Should we have a baby? Should we think about it now? So it's always oh. kind of taking information from the environment as to whether the conditions are suitable to for, for fertility, for pregnancy and for child rearing. This is fascinating. And fasting impacts that. Right. So... Um, so when a woman isn't getting enough energy in, so and we see this, of, of course, in anorexia, so in anorexic females, one of the key um, signs is amenorrhea, the loss of a period. And that's partly because we know that during famine conditions that infant mortality is very, very high. So over an evolutionary period, what happens is that basically the body says, the risk of losing a child is so high, we need to just shut down fertility because now is not the time to get pregnant. Mm. And so that's one of the, the, not concerns, but it's something that people need to be alert to when, with fasting. Because if, for example, a woman is eating in a very, very small window or perhaps she's doing alternate day fasting, actually, what is her body getting signals as to energy availability? Does her body now think we're in famine conditions? And will that shift how her um, the secretion of her sex hormones? And it's worth knowing, again, that sex hormones and fertility hormones are multitaskers. And of course, they impact estrogen is neuroprotective. So estrogen helps to protect the brain. Um, and it's also it also helps to protect the bones. So it's not just about the impact on fertility. It's also about the impact on brain health and bone health. So those are the things that people, that the literature, the researchers really need to be getting on top of because they've completely ignored women for, for such a long time. Oh but it's gosh. certainly something that women who are considering shifting their diet, changing the the timing of their meals need to be thinking about and tracking their periods. So if you are fasting and, you know, your periods become lighter or irregular, then that's probably a sign that whatever protocol you're on isn't probably right for you. Gosh, Kimberly, you know, this is brilliant. I'm going to listen to this episode and write notes because as someone who is fascinated and constantly reading and listening and researching around kind of, you know, the impact that you can have within diet, within fasting, epigenetic, it's just a minefield. One mm. day I'm like, great, this is telling me that fasting is going to do this, it's going to do that. And this is what you're saying is actually music to my ears because fasting and me do not work. I love food. I love to snack. And for me, I'm like, there's a reason. My body mm. wants that. My body needs that cinnamon bun. So <laughs> now I know why. But this is great. And as I said, I am going to listen to this and write notes. But I want to just kind of go mm. back to Sorry, my... Sorry, yeah, no, that was fine. a tangent. It was great. It was great. But before we move on I just wanted to wrap up that negative mm. brain bias mm. because you were so wonderfully describing to us why we have it it's a safety yes. mechanism it's survival but is there anything we can do in today's modern world to say okay this is actually being really detrimental overcritical it's holding me back and how can we yeah I guess start to acknowledge like what is the negative brain bias doing for me and how can I I guess get a bigger perspective to go you know what I need to turn this around. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think the answer is to be intentional. So if you've done all the physiological things, you're sleeping well, you're eating well, you know, you don't think there's probably a physical thing going on that's in impacting your tendency to focus on negative things, then it's about getting intentional about the way that you're thinking. And so one of the things that you'd be wanting to do is simply A, checking in and thinking, 
this is just my brain. This is just what my brain is doing. It's It doesn't mean anything. And that's one of the other things is that people can sometimes think they can take their thoughts a bit too seriously. And sometimes your brain just throws stupid ideas out and you just need to ignore them and mm. say, like, Yeah, not all thoughts are true. No, exactly. So just you can acknowledge it and remind yourself that this is just what brains do. Then you can re reorient your attention to the positive things. So, okay, someone said I spoke too quickly. Let me just go back and look at those 17 things that they said that I had done well. And sometimes people can find it quite hard to what I call hold on to the goodness. And if that's you, some people will know that, you know, and it's the kind of person who, if your friend hasn't got back to your text within the hour, you start to be a bit concerned that you've said something wrong, they hate you a little bit, the friendship is over. The kinds of people who need reassurance about their relationships or their work or their status, who find it perhaps a little bit more difficult to hold on to to the idea that things are fine, can sometimes do quite well with kind of physical reminders. So I sometimes use this with clients. Uh, get a jar and little strips of paper. So you know those little... Um, when you're revising, you get those little coloured strips that you can use to kind of tab uh, your pages. Some of those are little pieces of ribbon and write the positive things down. Write down your little wins. Write down those weekly wins and put them in the jar. And so at times when you start to be anxious or concerned, you've got a kind of physical reminder to go back to because your thoughts can, can kind of disappear and disintegrate and it can be difficult to hold on to them or remind yourself, actually, we had a fantastic time. We went out at the weekend. She said she really wanted to see me again next week, whatever. Um, but so it can be useful to have a physical reminder. And again, with the mind, we're thinking just repeating that will help it to become more embedded, more of a habit so that over time you shift your attentional bias towards the positive rather than this innate tendency towards the negative. Wow, I love that. Thank you. I heard that from somebody on this book that I always rave around, rave about, David Goggins, and he talks about, he calls it the cookie jar. And it's the same thing. So he's got these like little wins. I don't know if he actually wrote them down, but he has this like mental cookie jar where he's like, so he's like, I did this well, I, you know, I ran Mm -hmm. this race or whatever. So he talks about, he does these crazy endurance ultra events. And he said that when you're at like mile 80 of a hundred mile run and you know, you've got 20 miles to go and you know, your energy's down and your feet are blistered and your back's hurting. That's when he said, I go into the cookie jar and he basically will pull out those things of like oh, wow. I can do this because I've done that or you know not just physical stuff but mm-hmm. even mental things like I can endure because I have endured mm. this time or that time and I loved that I was like wow like this ex-navy seal who's like go in the cookie jar <laughs> get out the cookie that tells you that you can do it mm. so I really like that and I think writing things down people might hear it as well and go oh yeah write down on paper like, but actually I think the intentional action as you said when you write something it kind of does it like embeds this mm. like I think the actually again you're the mm. you're the science not me but there's like a thing of actually writing something with handwriting mm. instead of text instead of typing where you yeah you remember it more so i think writing it down don't just hear that exercise and think yeah okay sounds nice actually try do it carve out like 20 minutes out mm. of your day or the weekend whatever and write down maybe 10 things yeah put it in that jar and see let us know if you do because yeah. think it's a really really nice exercise Okay, let's talk about the Power Hour. Kimberly, yes, we've talked a lot, so this is great. So the Power Hour for me 
as you know, mm. I'm an early bird. I get up in the morning. I have this hour for myself, which has just become a game changer. And I can't imagine my life without it now. So I would love to know. Well, I want to hear yours, but I also mm. want to know from a mental health professional. Can having a morning routine help our physical function of the brain? Is there anything specific we can do in the morning to boost our brain power? All right. Um, so I'm going to give you a very, very um, scientific psychological therapist answer, which is, it depends. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. Kimberly, so just say yes. Adrian's right. The power hour is what you need. They're going to edit this bit out. She said yes. <laughs> Get up. I'm so sorry. I'm so kidding. No, I'm kidding. Please tell us. All right. Maybe. So a couple of reasons, right? Um, the first is um, chronotype. So whether you're a morning person or an evening person is genetically encoded. So someone who is an evening person and there's in the book I've, I've got a link where you can go and find out your chronotype. You can find out if you're an early bird, a morning lark or what we call a night owl. And then you can have super night owls who function at their best between 10 and 2 a.m. Like, these are people who are would hate you if you I, jumped I up at 5 a.m. and said, hey. I know these people. <laughs> also, most people now just say to me, yes, that's me. My chronotype is a, Nile, a night owl. And they only say it because they want to watch Love Island. They don't know actually what their gene is, but everyone's just jumping on that bandwagon and saying, yeah, Adrienne, my, my gene is my, my chronotype. I'm, a, I'm, a chron I'm, an, I'm an owl. Yeah, I'm a Y. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you just carry on. <laughs> so, and I think it is worth knowing that simply because I see clients who are A-type, driven, professionals, CEOs, but who are owls, but kind of beat themselves up because they really struggle in the morning. And then they think, you know, what else am I, should I be doing? How could I be working harder? Do I need to shift this, this and that? And actually, it's about pushing less and kind of just accepting this part of you, which is probably unchangeable. So there's that kind of caveat. Um, I think otherwise it can be very useful for people to have a little bit of time to kind of bring yourself together and to not feel, it's, I think it's about agency is what I would um, kind of position it as, which is how much you feel you are in control of your life versus the idea that it's your life that's just pushing you along. You get up because the alarm tells you. You leave the house because the train's coming. You get to your desk because otherwise your boss is going to tell you off. And then it feels like you're just completing tasks at other people's behest rather than that you have this internal locus of control, this internal sense of agency, and that you are in charge of your life, or at least bits of your life, right? There are parts of things that we just have to go along with. But... One of the, for example, one of the risks of burnout is that you feel you have low control over your, your work in particular, that you're working hard, but people can drop something on your desk and you have to do it. There's no question about and it. the hamster wheel thing. Yeah, you, you just keep stop. going and there's little value in it and there's little feedback and you don't get the praise for the amount of effort you're doing. That is kind of the royal road to burnout. So actually... Practices that help you to gain a sense of agency, a sense of control, a sense of autonomy over your life might be quite protective against that. So whether that happens at 5 a.m. for some people or whether it's taking <laughs> like the, you know, 9 p.m. or whatever, where you can carve it out, that sense that this is my life. 
This is what I'm choosing to do with it. And this is how I'm going to try to achieve certain things that I want to achieve. Then I think that is going to help kind of inoculate people against that sense that they're completely powerless in, in, in what they do day to day. I love that answer. We are not powerless because we have a power hour. Yes. No, seriously, I love that about agency and about mm. control and not saying, yeah, you control everything that happens to you or happens in your life. But we do have, yeah, we do have some control and we can create, whether it's an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, an hour in the night, whatever. We can reclaim mm. some of our time and schedule and energy before mm. we just have to give it away to everybody else. So, yeah, I love that. So, Kimberly, what mm. time do you get up in the morning? What's the first hour of your day like? And is there anything you avoid in the morning? So, my normal wake up is usually around a quarter past seven. I think um, I, I set an alarm for half seven, but I'm always up before it, which is quite nice um, in, in sense that I wake up without an alarm. So I don't feel like someone's slapping me in the head first thing in the morning. Um, I work quite odd hours, though, so I end up working quite late. So that works quite well for me um, in terms of my morning and evenings. I think I'm actually a bit in the middle. So I'm, I'm a bit um, flexible there, which is, again, quite nice. Um, yeah, I think you're going to be disappointed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why do people think that? There's no judgment here. There's no shame in the it's power just, hour. It's just not very powerful. Um, so my the first thing I do is kind of just lie there for a bit. Um, because I do something different most days of the week, the first thing that goes through my mind is, what day is it? What day is it? <laughs> we, yeah, I think we all do that sometimes. <laughs> um, because that will make a difference as to whether I need to, you know, try and get to the gym first or whether I have a bit of time to settle and blah, 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 blah. So after I work out what day it is, I will... <laughs> I love this. Academic, psychologist, chartered <laughs> professional. She's like, just figure out what the day is and then... <laughs> and then I'll kind of quietly go through in my mind the things that I need to do for that day. Um, and usually that's quite visual, again, because I am... I do write a lot of things out by hand and I find that that helps me to remember much more. So I'll be able to kind of almost visualise my diary. I have a, a written paper diary and I'll be able to see, like I did today, I was like, oh, there was a gap in the morning. I had a call at 11, a conference call, and I had to be here for one. So I could see that kind of visually set out in my day. Um, and then what I will tend to do is to go downstairs and then take my magnesium supplement uh, and then I will make myself a pot of green tea and then I will write out a list, like a physical list of the things that I need to do. And often that starts with emails and admin. And so I'll do a bit of that to start with. And then once I'm hydrated and the sleep inertia has worn off, then I'm ready to get up and, and actually do the things that I've, I've worked out I need to get done for that day. I think it's great. I like the idea of the visual thing. I do that too. I definitely map out that thing of, yeah, like I need to be here. I've got this for two hours. I'm going there. I do that as well. Is there anything you avoid in the morning? You haven't mentioned any tech there. So do you, you haven't picked up your phone yet. Do you look at your phone? So do you turn on the TV? I don't turn on the TV. Um, I will check my phone just because if I've woken up before my alarm, I'm like, what time is it? If it's 6am, maybe I'll go back to bed. I don't know. <laughs> um, so it just needs to know where I am, just orient myself in space and time. Um, and then I will check any, if anything urgent's come in, which is usually just WhatsApps. Like, I don't feel like anything urgent comes in in any other 
medium. Um, Most other things can wait. And then when I go downstairs and kind of get settled with a cup of tea, then I'll go through um, socials and emails and stuff. Awesome. I love that. And actually, I'm joking about the what day is it thing. But recently, my son and I got up really early. I think it was probably like he was up. I'm usually up before him, but we were up probably like 10 to 6. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's move. Let's do this. And I was like, do you go and get your banana? I was like, make sure you do this. And like, you know, get your things ready. And we kind of got into the like morning routine, get ready for school. And then we realized it was Saturday. (laughs) It was Saturday. And I was like, oh, like, what? It was just like this weird weird thing of like, I just felt so discombobulated for the rest of the day. (laughs) Okay, so before I ask you my final and closing question, Mm. could you please tell us where people can find you online? Where can they listen to the podcast? And also where can they get this brand new book, How to Build a Healthy Brain? Um, so pretty much everywhere on socials, I am food and psych. So F-W-O-D-A-N-D-P-S-Y-C-H. Um, most of my chit chat and info is on Instagram, though. So that's where you'll find all of the videos. I do neuroscience intro videos and just lots of chat about the brain and food on there. Um, if you go to my website, which is Kimberly Wilson. Co and it's Kimberly with an L-E-Y, um, then that's basically the hub which will send you either to my clinic, to the podcast, to my monthly book club uh, called Thinking Space um, and anything else, any events that I've got going on. And then the book is available right now. Right now, as of this week. <laughs> on Amazon and in all good bookshops and it's called How to Build a Healthy Brain and essentially I go through all of the lifestyle factors, all the best evidence that we have about lifestyle factors that can help to reduce your risk of things like depression, anxiety and the uh, kind of chronic disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Yes, and I can recommend that book because I've almost finished it. I've almost finished it. I've been power reading it this week. I'm loving it. Thank you so much, Kimberly. So my closing question is, if you had one extra hour each day from now on, you have 25 hours in mm. your day, what would you use that extra hour to do? I would probably go dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I used to dance a lot and then I moved away from where I danced the most and I have looked um, you know in my where I live now and it's just what kind of dance salsa cool okay so that would be a great way to spend it would an be yeah. so, like it would be a dream um, but uh, I haven't been able to find good classes nearby so I would either use that time to travel <laughs> Yeah, and get to salsa. Okay. Awesome. And that would be really good. Yeah. That sounds really fun. Well, thank you so much for coming and being a guest today and for giving us all an hour of your time, especially in this busy publication week. I really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. If you did, then please do rate and review us on iTunes. You can share it, post it on Insta stories. Let us know if you're trying any of the things that Kimberly's talked about today and have an awesome, awesome week. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye, Kimberly. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.